Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Please open your Bibles. Romans chapter 1. For those of you who are visiting with us, the habit that we follow, except for maybe during uh, Easter and Christmas, is that we go through books of the Bible and work our way consecutively from verse to verse. And we started the book of Romans a couple of months ago, and this week we will end chapter 1, which feels like an accomplishment. Um, The beginning of this uh, text that we're going to read today, this part of this uh, letter of Romans, it begins with the word, therefore. The word, therefore, always points back and says, what I'm about to say is the necessary conclusion from what came before. Therefore. Um, And so, before we read it, let's remember the Apostle Paul wants to come to Rome. He wants to preach the gospel. And he can't wait to get there and do it. And this is Rome. And if Corinth is Bloomington, Rome is a combination of San Francisco and Washington, D.C. Or London. Utterly decadent. A wicked city. But as is typical of wickedness, extremely proud of their wickedness. To them, it's sophistication. And nobody can argue that it isn't uh, powerful, as men reckon power. And so as the Apostle Paul's writing to them and saying how much he wants to come there, what, what you think if you read through the book of Acts, you have to remind me to do this every single time. We have a new discipline in my life, and that's called a timer. And it's for your benefit. So if I ever get up and preach and I don't do the timer, say, hey, the timer, and I'll thank you. All right. Seriously. All right. Um, And so you think about Rome and all of its wealth and its power and its sophistication, and the Apostle Paul saying, I just, I want to come. And then what does he want to do? I want to preach the gospel. Well, the Apostle Paul, as he says this, is completely aware of how foolish the gospel is to a real Roman. You know, it's as stupid as Mike Pence is to these blabbermouth women. You know, he thinks that Jesus talks to him. I mean, you know, if if I talk to Jesus, that's one thing, but if Jesus talks to me, hello! And that's the way that the Romans would look at the Apostle Paul. You know, any of you ever take the MMPI? None of you? Are you serious? Minnesota multifaceted personality inventory. None of you have ever, oh, you've taken it. Boy, the weird ones here. Okay. Yeah, the ones that had to get a professional degree of some sort. So when you go to seminary, they, they make you take the MMPI. And I won't tell you some of the questions that you wouldn't want to hear. 
But I will tell you that one of the questions in it is, does God talk? Do you think God talks to you? You know, on the one hand, you can say yes, and then you're afraid you'll be kicked out of seminary because you said yes. And on the other hand, you can say no, and you think you may get kicked out of seminary because you said no. <laughs> you know, what you know is that there's psychological people on the campus that are looking at you through that, and so you better get it right. And then you know it has internal consistency controls, and so if you try to game it, it's going to spit you out anyhow. So my favorite thing in seminary was one day this guy shows up. Every incoming class had to take it. Not just that, but the theological student inventory and all these psychological. And so this guy shows up, right? And they seat you all down. I don't know how many, 150 of you, 200, I don't know how many. And they, they sit you down in this room, they give you this thing, and it takes hours, right? Don't you remember? I think it takes hours to take it, doesn't it? Maybe not hours, but it's a long test. And right at the very beginning, you know, and they don't give you a choice. All right, now you're going to take the MMPI. And this guy sat down, and they handed this stuff to him. You know what he did? He stood up. He ripped it to shreds in front of everybody in the room. He said, I'm not taking this stupid test. <laughs> so as soon as I heard that, I found this freshman. I went to him, and I said, it wasn't a fresh first year. I said, right on, dude. I didn't have the courage to do that, you know. He's probably not in the ministry anymore, but, you know. <laughs> so the Apostle Paul is really aware of how he appears stupid and foolish to every real Roman. He knows what people think of him. And, you know, when you read about him wanting to go to Rome, you think this dude is a glutton for punishment. Everywhere he goes, there's a riot, there's a scandal. And he wants to go to Rome. And if they let him go the other places, they're going to let him go in Rome. You know, at the very home of all the power of the ancient world. And so as he's writing, I can't wait to come to you. I want to preach the gospel. He knows what they're thinking. And so then he lets out this exclamation. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And of course, what you know, the one thing you know for sure is he... he he actually is ashamed. You know, he's whistling in the dark. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, I don't really mean that. I don't mean that he's lying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What I mean is that he's keeping the serpent still under his foot by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'll never forget uh, the senior minister at First President Boulder, a, a wonderful man. Uh, Bob Erder, and it was a church, you know, in a university community like this, filled with academics, professors, students, and I remember one Sunday, Bob Erder just looking out at the congregation and saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and my heart was bonded to him. The Apostle Paul says, Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Just this wonderful, wonderful statement of the Apostle Paul's uh, love for the gospel, his trust in the gospel, his commitment to the gospel. And then he goes into the gospel, and it's for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. 
Why do we need good news? Gospel means good news. Well, we need good news because the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. Still today, it will be revealed for as long as we dwell on this earth, the wrath of God against ungodliness. And so he goes on and he says, even though they knew God, verse 21 they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. They gave him futile in their speculations. And, and then he talks about how they gave themselves over. They turned away from God, and they gave themselves over to worshiping what? Well, to man, made by God, bearing the image of God, not God. They worship man, and they, they worship the birds. Well, at least, you know, the birds are up in the air. Then they worship four-footed creatures, you know. And then they worship worms that crawl in the dust. And so he begins our text, and because Alex this morning told us to stand, I'm going to have you stand. You stand to honor the word of God. And he says this, this is the word of the Lord, and it's eternally true. Therefore, God gave them over. Therefore, God gave them over. In the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And then another exclamation by the Apostle Paul, he says, who is blessed forever, amen? <laughs> for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This section of the Apostle Paul's letter, it begins with the word therefore, and I've read what the therefore preceded. This is what men did, and because of it, therefore, God gave them over. Men knew God, but did not honor him, did not thank him, professed to be wise, and then exchanged the living God in all his glory for dying man and dying birds and dying dogs and worms. They exchanged the incorruptible God for every disgusting corruptibility. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Now, four times in this text, it uses that construction, therefore, God, God gave them over. Four times, or three times, it says God gave them over. 
And this is the first one. Verse 24, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Men who do not honor God and do not thank him and do not worship him but worship this world, God gives them over to impurity, degrading passions, and a depraved mind. Okay? This is the word of the Lord. Men's hearts are filled with lust, and God gives men over to the impurity, which is the object of these lusts. And for what purpose? To what end? What is the consequence of God giving men over? Well, it says in verse 24, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. God gives them over for the purpose of having their bodies be dishonored. Their bodies. Have you ever known somebody that works in pathology? (laughs) I remember once talking to a man, a physician, who worked in pathology in Los Angeles. Let me tell you something. You don't ever want to listen to a pathologist in Los Angeles. Listen, there are things this morning we cannot say. But let me tell you something. The most awful crimes that are committed are committed by homosexuals who are having relationships with each other. And every doctor who's a pathologist knows this. God gives them over. Why? God gives them over so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Now listen, at this point, because we are used to the media saying that anybody that says anything critical of homosexual relationships is a moralist, is ignorant, doesn't understand is stupid, is foolish, is bigoted, is a hater, on and on and on and on and on. Listen, this is not me saying this. This is God. This is not me. This is God. Yeah, we have people come here and they're just furious that we would read this text. And if they were speaking right now, they would say to me, oh, no, 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 I don't mind you reading it. Just shut up. And I say, okay, so I'm supposed to read it, but I'm not supposed to explain it. I'm not supposed to preach it. Just read it, because after all, there are texts of Scripture that you do have to read, right? But what you don't realize is that the Apostle Paul was just, all the Apostle Paul was doing was speaking to you. We don't even have to translate this. This doesn't even require me to paraphrase it like Nehemiah did give you the sense of it. You don't need to have me open this up for you if you have your eyes open. This is perfectly applicable to us today. And the question is, does God love us? Or is he mean? God gave them over to the lusts in their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Filthy bodies among filthy bodies. Did you read where it says among them? We're not even talking about a man alone in his bedroom or his bathroom. 
We're talking about men who give themselves to filthiness publicly among them. Plural. This is how shameless it is. Dishonorable bodies are God's judgment, his decree. They're what God gives us over to. You know, you'll have, uh, you'll have pastors and, and Bible students writing about this and saying, well, you know, God doesn't tempt anyone, quoting James. And so it can't really be that God gave them over. It's just God allowing them. You know, God, you know, it's like Tim Keller on hell. God, you know, God gives you what you want. It's like C.S. Lewis on, on hell. You know, well, it's just what you choose. And it, and it just makes you <laughs> it makes you see, right? It makes, right? It makes you feel so much better knowing you choose hell. I mean, it's absurd. Why are we going through this, this effort to, to protect God from a bad reputation? God gave them over. And you say, well, God's not the author of evil. And I say, that's right. Good. Well, then God couldn't have given... It says God gave them over. And so God is not the author of evil, and God gave them over. And giving over is active. It's not passive. God didn't sit down... (laughs) Right? God gave them over. God gave them over. 4, verse 25, they exchanged. Now, you know, another expression would be traded in, okay? Generally, you trade in a beater for a new car. Go on Kelly Blue Book and find out what your beater's worth on a trade-in and how much you can get it for a private sale, you know. And you, you trade in the less good for, you know, like an old guy that's tired of his wife, he trades her in, right? But that's not the way we do it. For they exchange, they traded in the truth of God for a lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Why would we do this? 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 The Apostle Paul again stops and he exclaims. And again, it's like whistling. It's the the snake under his foot. He says, rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. You know, we have such a value on things having order and place and and, and rational and logical and reasonable and everything that even our choir, when they sing a black spiritual, they, they, they 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 have been rehearsed in how to sing it so that their voice goes a little bit flat at just the proper time. And we're so uptight that nothing ever comes out of us. You remember Nehemiah this morning? It says the people weeped. And I sat there listening to, to, to Alex teach 
and just wishing that we as a congregation could weep. Just weep. There is a time for mourning. But we, we sit, you know, boop, 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 boop. and if somebody says amen, everybody else goes amen, and somebody claps, some of us clap. And... The Apostle Paul says, who is forever praised, and then he says, amen. And we should constantly be saying amen in worship. Why? Because that's how you keep the snake under your foot. You exclaim when you have a snake under your foot. Can you imagine what it would sound like if there was a snake here and I'm going to put my foot on it, right? I I would go, foot on snake. No, I'd be squealing like a girl. And that's what the Apostle Paul's doing. He's saying, who's forever praised? Amen. You know, he's in the gutter with the most despicable, degraded things you could imagine. And in that, he's like, who is forever praised? Come on. Amen. We have to say amen more, people. You know, and not just when I say it. You've got to keep the snake under your foot. Who is forever praised. Amen. Verse 26, for this reason, now this is the second time. The first time it was, therefore, now it's for this reason. Both of them point to what came before. Therefore, but up, but up, for this reason, but up, but up. Now, what's the next one? Well, this is the place where for the second time it says God gave them over. Now, what did God give them over to? Well, God gave them over to a lifestyle. Is, is that what God gave them over to? Did he give them over to a lifestyle? It's not your lifestyle, right? Right? It's not your lifestyle, but it's their, their lifestyle, Right? God gave them over to lifestyle, right? Right? Is that what it says? No. No, that's not what it says. What does it say? It says God gave them over to a a homosexual orientation, right? Sam Albury and Gospel Coalition, all those guys, Al Moore, they all talk about homosexual orientation. It's a real deal. And I'm looking in vain for somewhere in this chapter for the Apostle Paul to talk about a lifestyle and an orientation. (laughs) No, 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 no. I certainly understand why these men compromise. I'm sympathetic. But after spending my life knowing people in the homosexual and lesbian sin, I am not soft. No. No. Do we want Adam to be tender about our tumor? You know, do we want Adam to say, well, that's a pretty tumor. Let me feel it. Oh, that's kind of a nice sort of resilient softness. Let me take a picture of it. I want to hang it on the wall of my office. Such a pretty tumor you have. You know? Very special snowflake tumor. What a, what a brave man you are to live with that tumor and to not give in to that tumor. Do you understand what I'm saying? We would never accept a doctor who is precious about our tumor 
We want him to cut it out. And yet when it comes to degrading passions, we're so precious about them, you know. It's like, well, that's, that's my own special snowflakeism. You know, this is, this is capital W, who, capital I, I, always capital I, 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 capital A-M. This is who I am. No, it's not. It's a degrading passion. God gave you over to it. No! Ever since I was a little child, I don't ever remember making a decision to have this degrading passion. Oh, okay, so it's your snowflakeism. Well, it's easy for you to say you're married and heterosexual. And you know what my response to that is? My response is, how do you know? How do you know I'm heterosexual? How do you know that I'm not a little snowflake? How do you know that I don't have degrading passions? I'd like every man here who doesn't have degrading sexual passions, every man here who doesn't have degrading sexual passions, to please raise your hand. I don't see any hands up. Not one. Not one. Every single man, from the time he is aware of what's going on in his life until the time he dies, struggles with degrading passions. No, no, no. Don't hate homosexuals. Call them to live as you live. They're not special. They're just like you. Just a little bit different perversity. More degraded than most of you. But we have a number of people here who do say, listen, (laughs) you don't know what my degrading passions are. Don't you dare judge me as not able to sympathize and empathize with you. Come on. It has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. God made male and female. And it is a command to be obeyed. And you have a calling, and that calling has to do with your body parts. Do you understand me? And all of us have that calling. And that calling has to do with authority and leadership. It has to do with submission. It has to do with nurturing. It has to do with being receptive, with being initiatory, with taking response. Your body parts command you, and you are to obey them. And every single one of us here, in some way, is homosexual. Every single one of us is gay. Okay? You women are gay, you men are gay. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean every single one of us refuses to obey our sex. All of us. And the only question is, how do you refuse to obey your sex? Some of you don't obey your sex because you'll be hanged before you'll say okay to your hubby. It's rebellion, and it's contrary to the nature of femininity. (laughs) Okay? You're homosexual. You're trying to obliterate the distinction between husband and wife. That's homosexuality. You're trying to make a, a one out of what God intended to be a two. Some of you are lazy dogs. You won't work. You're homosexual. You see, gay has lots of meanings be, beyond the bathhouse. 
okay? We are sinners. We have lived in this world in such a way that all of us are seduced to deny who God made us. He made us to worship him. We refuse. He, he, he revealed truth. We would prefer a lie. And you just go right down. Now, of course, it makes sense that when it comes to our body parts, we rebel, right? We won't confess them in the way we live with one another. We won't confess them in the way we make love. We're just like, this is who we are. And God says it's wrong. It's not a lifestyle. It's not a part of your snowflakeism. It's rebellion against the living God who is forever praised. Amen. Amen. And now, all of a sudden, all of us are like, okay, I think I'm beginning to, I think the tendonitis is, I think I can, I think I can hear again. Because man, the volume of this wicked world has just been oppressive to me, you know. Finally, I think I hear a voice in the distance calling out to me. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight paths. Every valley will be, every mound brought low. The crooked place straight. And the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And this is the most uplifting sermon you'll hear this year. Because finally, finally, God himself says that Bloomington has no clothes on. You know, the little boy, the emperor has no clothes on. God himself has stripped our city naked. And he says, you guys are degraded, and it's because I've given you over. Okay? I want you to notice something in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Mind you, not degrading copulation, but degrading passions. In other words, the very desire itself is degrading. And it, God gave us over to the desire, not just the act, the desire. Okay? God gave them over to degrading passions. And then notice what it says here. It says, for what? It says... For the woman, the women gave, but that's not what it says. It's a possessive. Do you know what a possessive is? They're women. Now, at this point, all the commentators and Bible students go off on why women are named first, but nobody says anything about there. But I think the Bible's inspired, and therefore, I think that every word of it is helpful. So I think the possessive is helpful. Now, why would they start, why would the Apostle Paul start with women, and why would he start by putting a possessive pronoun in front of it? Why would he say, they're women? Wouldn't it be enough to just say, women? Why does the Apostle Paul say, they're women? Who is possessing the women? Come on, you can say it, it's the Bible. That's right, the men. Women are men's women. This isn't just talking about marriage where you say, okay, I'll be married and I'll... Okay? We're talking about a categorical identity. And the categorical identity of women is it 
is their women, meaning women are men's female. Because actually the word here isn't women. You know how you complain about the New American Standard Bible being wooden, all right? And so in this case, the translators gave you what you wanted, and they, they, they obscured what the text says in Greek. Because it doesn't actually say women. There are very clear wor- words for women and men in Greek. But here what it says actually is they're females. They're females and the males. It actually avoids the use of an error, and it uses a word that strictly means female and male. Now, why would it go from man-woman to female and male? Why would it do that? Well, because what he's doing here is making it very clear that the entire race is bifurcated. We're not talking about hermaphrodites here. They're the exception that proves the rule, all right? We're talking about male. All of us are male or female, all of us, all right? And what he's doing here is he's referring not to your personhood, but to your sexuality. He's speaking here about your biology, about your chromosomes. And he's saying they're females. So males have a possessive relationship to females. Now, why would the Apostle Paul write that? Why would he start with females? Well, because good writers gain, gain, gain strength as they go along. And so he starts with the women. And how, how terribly undignified it is that the females choose to have sex with each other instead of with the male. And yet, this is the curse of God. God gives them over. They're females. Um, I want to read to you something that I didn't discover until a couple of years ago, which I think is very important. When he says, excuse me, when he says they're, they're females and males, he's actually making a reference back to Genesis 1.27, where it says, God created man, so that's Adam in Hebrew, Adam. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them, and then again, the same thing, male and female, all right? And so making reference to this, the Apostle Paul does something else that's in Genesis, all right, and that is he's, he makes reference to the account of uh, Noah, I want to read to you the account of Noah because it's very, very interesting. It's maybe one of the most intense statements in all of Scripture about the perpetuity and the universal nature of the relationship of man and woman. All right? Because what? Well, because it has to do with animals. (laughs) Isn't that fascinating? Okay, listen. Genesis 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all what? your household. There's that possessive, all right? Why is it Noah's household? Well, because God's going to be merciful to the members of his household because of their authority. Okay, who's their authority? It's Noah. God says, enter the heart, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. In this case, it's a good thing because Noah alone, and so because of that, his household gets brought into the ark, okay? You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens a male and what? 
These are animals. A male and his female. <laughs> animals. Now, every woman here should feel relief at this because if you are irritated with the irresponsibility and narcissism and slothfulness of your husband, you're right to be because you're his female and there ain't much you can do about it. That's the way God ordained it. And so marry well. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean too, and God repeats it, he says, a male and what? His female. And then in verse 6, now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and what? His sons and his wife and his sons' wives. Listen, I cannot stand people who call themselves Christians and, and feminists. But I love godless feminists. Because a godless feminist won't lie. And they just say, Scripture's hopelessly patriarchal. And they're right. And they know they either choose God or they defy him and there's nothing in between. Okay? There's nothing in between. I mean, when we're getting down to the animals going in the ark and it's their female, his female, I mean, women, either you love that doctrine or you hate it. But don't try to soft pedal it and say that God, you know, and he was writing and, and you know, nope, nope, nope. The Bible says that man is the glory of God and it says that woman is the glory of man. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 27. Their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire. This is the gay Christian movement, burning in your desire but not acting on it and telling everybody you're a snowflake and people should respect your difficult struggle. Burned in their desire. I was going to read a section from the book. Uh, Jürgen and Joseph and I have written a book on this. And I was going to read a section from the book, but I can't do it because it's so awful. The things that are said by the, these gay Christian movements, the Gospel Coalition, all these guys are promoting. You read what they actually say, and what they actually do is they say, burning in our desire is something we have no choice over, and we're going to tell you we burn in our desire, but we're going to promise to be celibate. And so you, you know, and what if a guy came in here and said, I burn in my desire for children, you know, like the dude over in Hawaii? You know, 50 million, 80 million, how much did the Hawaii private school pay this week? Well, how much was it? 50? 50 million dollars. Why? Well, because they had a psychiatrist who was burning in desire for children. That's the way the media tells you. That's not what it was. It wasn't burning in desire for children. It was burning in the desire for little boys. Okay? Can we please be honest? 
Homosexuality has always focused on young boys. Always. All through history, it's been young boys. No historian will deny this. None. And if they deny it, it's because they're a dishonest historian. And so the men abandoned the natural function, burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Let me, let me say a couple of things here. And this is not to beat up on anybody, but because we're so inundated with lies by the lying media and lying scholarship and lying Christian writers that I have to say them. First of all, Gibbon, in his massive history, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, has a footnote, just a footnote, all right, where he says, in passing, that of the first 15 Roman emperors from 31 BC to 138 AD, okay, only Claudius was heterosexual. This is the world of Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Only one. Now, what kind of homosexuality was it that they were giving themselves to? It's all the same. It's all the same. Read any accurate history of the ancient world, and it's always older men with boys. Always. And those men always are married with children. There is no such thing as a homosexual orientation. There is just Mick Jagger and David Bowie, polymorphous perversity. And God gave them over. God gave them over. Do you understand this? And so what you have is a a central theme of Plato's Symposium in 380 BC. So this was like within 50 years of what Alex was teaching us of Nehemiah. Okay? And Plato's whole symposium is given over to, to very sophisticated philosophical types in, in Greece. <laughs> right? What do they all talk about? They all talk about having sex with boys. Plato! In a commentary written maybe 75 years ago by C. Cranfield, He's not in our world, and so he just throws off a couple lines describing what's going on here in Romans, right? He doesn't feel the pressure you and I feel. And so here's what Cranfield, guy, consummate scholar. This is what Cranfield says. He says, quote, the fact that ancient Greek and Roman, ancient Greek and Roman, all right, society not only regarded pederasty, you know what pederasty is, right? It's what I'm talking about. Men with boys. The fact that they regarded pederasty with indulgence, not only regarded it with indulgence, but that they were inclined to glorify it as actually superior to heterosexual love. All right? Is too well known to be dwelt on here. Degrading passions burned in their desire. And then they receive, God gives them over, and they receive the due penalty for their corruption. 
And so what's the due penalty? Well, I just got done reading Manchester's first volume of the biography of Winston Churchill. Do you know what about the first third to half of that book has as a recurring theme? Any of you read it? You remember? Winston Churchill's life was defined by the fact that his father suffered under and died of syphilis. His mother didn't love him, and his father died of syphilis. Now, am I allowed to say to you that this is the due penalty of their corruption? Can I say that about Winston Churchill's father? Or are you offended? Come on. Now, may I say that AIDS is the due penalty for homosexual corruption? How about, how about syphilis? How about gonorrhea? How about herpes? Maybe you're willing for me to go that far, but how about suicide? You see all these people committing suicide by opioids? That's what it is. And you know, every single one of those men, you go back and what you'll find is unbelievable giving over to sin to the point that they don't want to live. Okay, let's be honest about this. The problem isn't opioids. The problem is that we have failed to love men and to call them to who God made them. God has set up our existence in such a way that when we trample on sex and love, we receive the due penalty for our corruption. And it's true physically, it's true emotionally, psychologically, it's true spiritually. Many of you are what do you call it? The, what's the word? Uh, survivors. Many of you are the survivors of sexual sin and, and the utter degradation and corruption that it's caused in your lives. And it goes on from generation to generation. Listen, we all know this. We all know this. There's nothing unkind about saying that AIDS is receiving the due penalty for their sin, nothing. You'd have to be an idiot not to say it. You know, we had a woman back at the former church here in town and her brother had died of AIDS, big secret. Nobody in the, in the family would admit to it, you know, and they were all so precious about it. You couldn't say anything about homosexuality or AIDS or anything, you just go berserk. Listen, if, if, if you took a harpsichord out and, and pl played with it in a mud puddle, how pretty would the harpsichord sound? Do you, do you get it? If you take your wife to a swingers party, how pretty will your wife be afterwards? Come on. If you take a flute, and you take it to the beach and then swim with it, how pretty is the flute going to be? 
Everything God's given us, everything, is given for our well-being and for our joy. To be enjoyed with thanks. But boy, we start, we start trampling on our wife. Oh yeah, you can turn your wife into a man if you want to. <laughs> you know, there are men in this church that have turned their wives into men. They can't depend on their husband, so now their wife is a man. And he probably brags about what a hard worker she is. Why? Because he isn't. He's trampled on femininity. We must see that God is not mocked, that whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. The man that sows to his sinful nature will from that nature reap destruction. It'll be physical, it'll be psychological, it'll be emotional. He'll kill his children, he'll kill his wife, and then he will stand before God and every single one of those things will be listed. There will be no escaping the living God, none. 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 And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And there will be no pew surveys at the judgment seat of God. You will not be graded on a curve. God has set the standard, and God will hold you accountable to that standard. Verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God, this is the third occurrence, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Isn't this fascinating? You've got depraved desires, you've got depraved lusts, you've got depraved actions, and now you have a depraved mind to those things which are not proper. And then the list of them, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, Evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, or gossip, slanderers. Haters of God, by the way, they both begin with an I, but, but maybe it would be better to speak of insolence rather than impertinence. This is, this is my, my note to my sweet daughter about her blog post. You know, when a child speaks to an adult as if that adult is that child's peer, we can call it impertinence, but impertinence is cheek by jowl, right next to insolence. <laughs> and so if you want to keep your children from being insolent, maybe deal firmly with impertinence. All right. Arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. Isn't that a perfect description of Silicon Valley? Disobedient to parents. Where did that one come from? <laughs> you know? I thought we were in exotic land. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and how sweet that it ends with unmerciful. If you ever tell me that you have a rescue dog, I will Don't ever tell me you have a rescue dog. I don't care if you have one, but don't you ever parade your mercy towards a dog. 
If I want to know whether you're merciful, I'll see how you treat children who bear the image of God. Don't you make a show of your mercy through how you treat animals. Now, it is true. If you're cruel to animals, you will be cruel to people. Don't you ever tell me you have a rescue dog. Do you, do you get my point? They're unmerciful. But of course, unmerciful people who are caught up in all these wickedness make a great show of their mercy. They've got programs on the television about their great mercy to worms living, you know, in the rainforest of Sumatra. You know, and they got the rescue dogs and they have the ads with the little dogs looking out with sad faces. And won't you just give some money to feed this poor dog? And meanwhile, what? Well, meanwhile... Meanwhile, 1.3 million a year we're slaughtering, and that's not taking into account chemical abortions. It's not taking into account infanticide. It's not taking into account all the old people that are knocked off in the nursing homes. Unmerciful. Filled with all unrighteousness and then the list. You know what? Once you turn away from Jesus, everything is flipped upside down. And what you think is mercy is horror and cruelty. And that's what Flannery O'Connor said. She said, if other ages felt less, they saw more, even though they saw with the blind, prophetical, unsentimental eye of acceptance, which is to say, of faith. And then she continues, in the absence of this faith, Now, we govern by tenderness. It is a tenderness which, long cut off from the person of Christ, is wrapped in theory. When tenderness is detached from the source of tenderness, its logical outcome is terror. It ends in forced labor camps and in the fumes of the gas chamber. All the protests of this world and the country we live in, that we're tender, that we're merciful, that we just are sensitive, that we're compassionate. And verse 32 says, although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. I got up this morning, and I had this article in my box from my son Joseph over in Cincinnati. A Hamilton County, Ohio judge on Friday gave custody of a transgender teen to his grandparents rather than his parents, allowing them to make medical decisions regarding his transition. The parents didn't want the teen, a 17-year-old who identifies as male. In other words, it's a woman. The parents didn't want their daughter, a 17-year-old who wants to be a man, to undergo hormone treatment and refused to call her by her chosen name, but of course they write him by his chosen name, triggering suicidal feelings according to court testimony. The parents wanted custody in order to make medical decisions for the teen and prohibit the treatment that his medical team had recommended. Judge Sylvie Sieve Hendon had instructed that the family's name not be released. If I was that family, I'd release my name. I'd publish it from every skyscraper in the country. 
Hendon's ruling says that in addition to receiving custody, the grandparents can petition to change the child's name in probate court. The teen will now be covered by the grandparents' insurance. The grandparents, rather than parents, will be the ones to help make medical decisions for the child going forward. Why did the parents not want their child to be mutilated with drugs and surgery? Because the parents fear God. And this is our country today. We don't just give ourselves, but we approve of that boy, that girl. And we're hellbound. Now, what is our response as Christians? Well, a couple of things. Number one, don't one of you think that you're better than any of this? You're not. You are what the Apostle Paul has been writing about. You are not someone who honors God. You are not thankful. You do not worship God. You worship yourself. You worship animals. And you're not better than any of the people that the Apostle Paul is speaking of. You're not better. And listen, if you read this text or preach it to people who you think you're better than, that's, that's hate. <laughs> because that's using God's condemnation of sin to establish your superiority to another person. That's hate. Okay? Do you understand this? We must plead guilty before this trial, this indictment. We must plead guilty. Every last one of us. Every single one of us. This is who we are. And that's why we need Jesus. That's it. This is us. Okay? Now the second thing is, don't you dare say that you agree with Romans 1 and then avoid using the language of Romans 1. You don't agree with Romans 1 if you speak about lifestyles. Now, you're refusing to confess your faith in God. Now, does that mean that you always have to choose the most obnoxious word that there is? The most in-your-face word? No, no, no. But, you know, something about the excluded middle? <laughs> you know? In other words, don't say that I'm saying you have to be as obnoxious as you can be or you're not being faithful to God. No, I'm just saying, would you please sometime? somewhere, in just a pathetic little amount, would you please confess what the Bible says in the words that the Bible uses? Just someplace. You know, maybe, you know, maybe go into your house and, and lock the front door. And then go upstairs and lock the upstairs door. And then go into your bedroom and lock the bedroom door. Then go into the bathroom and lock the bathroom door. And then go into the toilet room and lock the toilet. Some of us have toilet doors, okay? And then say, depraved. Unnatural. Filthy. And, and just see how you feel. And then think, maybe could you open the toilet door?
Okay, I'm done. And we're done, chapter one. Yeah, yeah! <laughs> Those of you who are new don't realize it takes me forever to get any job done. So everybody's happy that I got Romans one done. All right, let's eat the Lord's Supper. <laughs>